Good morning, everyone. Morning. My name uh, is Rob Sturdy. I'm the Anglican chaplain at the Citadel, and it's a real joy to be with you here this morning. I'm a graduate of the Citadel from 2003. That's where I came to know Jesus. Uh, that little chapel at the Citadel is the chapel that actually recommended me for ordination, and uh, I have been ministering since then. So it's a joy to be back there and serving that community. It's a joy to be here with you this morning. As you can imagine, uh, college students uh, are great contributors to the work of ministry, but there are some things they cannot contribute, like money, or at least they cannot contribute very much of it. And so uh, we are dependent absolutely upon the generosity and charity of uh, others. And if you'd like to know more about that, I've, I've left some of these out uh, in that hallway where you can hear a little bit about what we're doing and see a little bit about what we need. But uh, God did not commission the ministers of the gospel to give fundraising sermons. And so that's not what I'm going to do with you this morning. I'll be in Isaiah chapter 35, verses 1 to 10. Vladimir Prop, who is a Russian folklorist, he said that many of the greatest and most enduring folk and fairy tales begin with what he called nedostaka, or, uh, or uh, nexvatka. And these are Russian words that are roughly translated as lack or insufficiency or want. And so you might think about Jack and the Beanstalk. How does Jack and the Beanstalk begin? Well, it begins with a widow, very poor, who has a son she has to provide for. And their daily bread comes from selling the milk of their cow at the town market. What happens to the cow, though? One day it ceases to produce milk. They're plunged into utter poverty. The beginning of the story is want. What about Snow White? Not, not the Disney version, but the real version. Do you, anybody know how it begins? A mother's longing to have a child. A mother's longing to have a child. She wants a daughter. It begins with a want. And Beauty and the Beast. Anybody know how this one begins? A little girl wants a rose. And so her father goes questing for a rose in a land without roses, and he finds them growing in the garden of a castle that just happens to be inhabited by who? The beast, yeah. And as he's plundering the garden, he gets captured by the beast, and it's not just that we begin with a lack of a rose, but he loses his freedom, his daughter loses her freedom. All great stories begin, he said, with, this, with a lack, with a want, with a need. Now, the best stories endure because there's something about them that's universally true, true in every time, in every place, with every people. That's why they endure. That's why they're timeless. So much has changed since the Brothers Grimm put pen to paper to write down these stories. We have had two world wars. We have sent a man to the moon and brought him back, which is amazing. Everyone in the room has the opportunity to have a camera in their pocket right now. With that camera, you can surf the web. If you don't like this sermon, you can pull up a better one. <laughs> so much has changed. They would be bewildered at this world, but you know, they would recognize some things. You know what they would recognize? They would recognize that the world you and I are, are living in is still a world of want and desire and hunger and lack. You and I, we have different longings. We, some of us long for a lover. Some of us long for... Fame. Some of us long for money. Some of us, like 
like my young men and young women at the Citadel, are longing for the day when they can distinguish themselves on the battlefield or in the civic world. They want to do something great, and they will. We all have longings, and these longings, just like in those old stories, propel us on quests to satisfy our desires. Now, the big difference between the world we live in and the world of the fairy story is this. Rarely, even when we get our heart's desire, even when we get what we always wanted, rarely is it what we thought it would be. Because there's still that desire that remains. There's still that hunger that remains. There's still a lack. But when you turn to the reading from today, Isaiah chapter 35, and in my pew Bible, it's on page 757. The prophet Isaiah says, a time is coming. There's a time coming when hunger and lack and longing are going to come to an end. 500 years before the birth of Jesus, Isaiah announced there's a time coming when he said that the desert and the parched land are going to be made glad. And the wilderness will rejoice and blossom. He said there's a time coming when feeble hands would get strength. There's a time coming when the fearful would be made courageous. There's a time coming when those who are blind will be able to see. There's a time coming when those who are deaf will be able to hear. There's a time coming when the lame are going to be able to leap again. There's a time coming, he said, when the haunts of of these savage and predatory animals will be turned into gardens. There's a time coming when the burning sand is going to be made cool. What is that other than the end of longing? And the beginning of satisfaction. What is that other than the end of wanting and the beginning of having? There's a day coming. That's what I want to talk with you about today. Isaiah chapter 35 verses 1 to 10. I like when people follow along. You certainly don't have to. But I like when people follow along. That's how you know I'm not making it up. And so here's where we begin. We're going to begin where Isaiah begins. We begin in the wilderness. And the wilderness is, is the image par excellence of want and need and hunger because there's nothing to drink in the wilderness. There's nothing to eat in the wilderness. In fact, the wilderness was such an inhospitable place that God's people, after they were freed from slavery in Egypt, do you remember what they did? They longed to go back because there was more satiety in slavery than there was in the wilderness. Now, that's not the only image that Isaiah uses. There's a lack of strength in verse 3. There's a lack of courage in verse 4. There's a lack of sight and hearing in verse 5. There's a lack of mobility in verse 6, and we could go on and we could go on. But there's an experience of need, you see. And Isaiah is addressing this need. He's addressing it on two levels. He's, He's addressing it on a literal level. We are talking about people who are literally blind, people who are literally deaf, people who are literally poor and impoverished. They don't have money in their pocket. He's he's talking about them, but he's not only talking about them. Because oftentimes in the Bible, especially in the miracles of Jesus, one of the things you'll notice is that when Jesus heals a blind man, it often begins a conversation about spiritual blindness. When Jesus heals a deaf man, it often begins a conversation about spiritual deafness. When he raises the dead, it often begins a conversation about our need to be made alive spiritually, not just physically. 
And so, yes, he's addressing the literal needs of people, but he's also opening up the door for you and I to think about the spiritual wildernesses and haunts of our own soul. So I think when Isaiah is talking about the wilderness, he's also talking about what the American poet and philosopher and essayist Henry David Thoreau, when he said that the mass of men lead lives of what? Quiet desperation. You heard this sermon already. I don't know. I think he's describing what Bernard Levin, who's the English journalist and broadcaster, was describing when he said that countries like ours are full of people who have all the material comforts they desire together with such non-material blessings as a happy family and yet lead lives of quiet and at times noisy desperation, understanding nothing but the fact there's a hole inside them. And however much food and drink they pour into it, however many motor cars and television sets they stuff it with, however many well-balanced children and loyal friends they parade around the edges of it, it still hurts. Now that's the wilderness, you see. And Isaiah is saying that there's a time coming when the wilderness, in all of its manifestations, is going to be coming to an end. The desert and the parched land is going to bloom. The wilderness will blossom. Feeble hands are made strong. Fearful hearts are made courageous. The blind see, the deaf hear, the lame are made to leap. There is, says Isaiah, a day coming where there will be a sudden and dramatic and irrevocable change in the fortunes of the wilderness. That's what he's saying. You know uh, who J.R.R. Tolkien is, don't you? Yeah, friend of C.S. Lewis and T.S. Eliot and, and Charles Williams and, and many, many others. And, of course, you know him because he wrote The Lord of the Rings. He said, yeah, it's true that all great enduring stories, they begin with this hunger, this lack. But the great stories never end on that note. The great stories end with satisfaction, consolation, yeah, the happy ending. And he said uh, that this doesn't come about, this satisfaction doesn't come about in the same way that a man who's hungry is satisfied at dinner time. The hungry man knows that dinner's coming at 6.30 and he expects to be satisfied, but that's never the way these stories work. Because in these stories, there's always a witch that casts an unbreakable curse. There is always a hero that's flung into an impenetrable dungeon. There is always a child whose fate is sealed. And the best of stories bring you to a place where the last thing you expect is satisfaction where the last thing you expect is consolation. But, Tolkien said, the best ones, they have a sudden, joyous, unexpected turn of events. And there's no word in the English language, he said, that can describe that sudden, joyous turn of events. So he made one up. You want to know what it is? It's a weird word. He called it the eucatastrophe. Now, some of you are already rolling this around in your mind. What's it mean? Well, I'll tell you. We're going to have Holy Communion in a moment. The Lord's Supper. Also called the Eucharist, and it means Thanksgiving. And you heard that word, eucatastrophe. And the other word you heard was catastrophe, right? 
Well, here's what happens in these stories. There is a, there is a sudden turn of events that is catastrophic to the witch who casts the unbreakable curse. There's a sudden turn of events that is catastrophic to the impenetrable dungeon. There's a sudden turn of events that is catastrophic to the fate that sealed the doom of the child. Now that's good news, isn't it? That's why Tolkien called it a good catastrophe. A catastrophe worth giving thanks for. A catastrophe. Isaiah is saying there's a catastrophe coming. And it's going to be catastrophic for the wilderness. But it's going to be good for you. It's going to be a catastrophe. And 500 years after Isaiah said the day is coming, a man came and his name was Jesus. And what does Isaiah say? He says, God is coming. God is coming. God is coming to do this. God is coming to bring about the catastrophe. How will we know when he gets here? The blind will see. The deaf will hear. The lame will leap. And what is happening is Jesus is wandering about the Galilean wilderness. The blind are seeing. The deaf are hearing. The lame are leaping. What's that mean? It means God has come, doesn't it? Isn't it? That's what it means. And, it, and as he's addressing these, these literal wilderness experiences, isn't he also addressing the spiritual ones? Doesn't he say to the woman at the well, my water's different than yours. I've, I've got water that you don't know much about. I've got water that if you drink from it, you'll never be thirsty again. What's that mean? Isn't that the end of the wilderness? Isn't that the end of wanting and the beginning of having? What's he say to his disciples? I've got food. I've got food you know nothing about. I've got food you eat, you'll never be hungry again. It's the end of wanting and the beginning of having, right? And this journey of satisfaction, of our longings, it comes to a conclusion on the night before Jesus dies on the cross, where he does what? This is my body, given for you. And what's he say next? Take and eat. Take and eat. There's a link. There's a link between the satisfaction of spiritual hunger and the forgiveness of sins. You ever thought about this? Do you know what it is? I'll tell you. When someone hurts you, when someone wrongs you, you have two options, don't you? You can punish them or you can forgive them, right? What does punishment look like? Relationally, what's it look like? Oftentimes, doesn't it look like the withholding of yourself from the person who hurt you? I'm not going to call them back anymore. I'm not having lunch with them anymore. They're not on the Christmas card list anymore. <laughs> they hurt me. And because they hurt me, I'm going to withhold myself from them. Now, that's one option you can take. It's, it's punishment. What's the other option? It's forgiveness, right? And what does forgiveness look like? Practically, tangibly, rubber hits the road. What's it look like? You give yourself back to them. You give yourself back to the person who hurt you, right? And so what is Jesus doing on the night before he dies? To the people who wronged him, to the people who hurt him, 
but the people who still long to be with him. What's he saying? I'm not going to withhold myself from you. Take and eat. And what's he do the very next day? He withholds nothing. He gives them everything they have. And because he gives everything he has, they can be truly satisfied. It was Augustine. He said, you know, we are restless people. We are restless people till we find our rest in God. And you'll be eternally restless until you find your rest in God. And many of you know that, but many of you may also be nursing this fear. I know, I know many of my young men and young women at the Silla are nursing this fear that, uh, that on, on the great day, when all the secrets of the hearts are made known and all the deeds are shattered from the rooftop, on that great day, because of what I've done, God is going to withhold himself from me. And this hunger that I have, this restlessness that I know that I know will only be satisfied in him, will never be satisfied forever. A lot of them are nursing that fear. You might be nursing that fear. But listen, what's, what does he say? Take and eat. I'm withholding nothing. Because you are forgiven, I'm withholding nothing. You'll be satisfied. Friends, that's the eucatastrophe that ends the wilderness experience of the human heart. Now, let me just uh, apply this in two quick ways, and then we'll stop. Isaiah, he says, you know, when, the, when this day comes, it's strange. We go back and look at it later. 35, 1 to 10, it's very strange. There's a great day coming, <laughs> catastrophe, you catastrophe, immediate change. But then there's a highway that you have to get on and walk. What does that mean? Well, it means that there is an immediate reversal of fortunes, but it also means it's kind of lived out in a process, Okay. Does that make sense? Okay. Some of you are Christians. I hope many of you are Christians. And you have entered into the eucatastrophe. You are being satisfied in Christ. You have come to some idea that God is not going to withhold himself from you. He's given himself to you. But now you've got to get on this highway and you've got to live it out. And you will be on that highway until the second advent of Jesus. When, when your desire for him and his desire for you bring you to the end of all things together. And on that highway, what I know will happen to me and what will happen to you is that you will stumble and you will make mistakes and you will screw up. And when, when my young men and young women screw up and make mistakes, you know what they do? They go into hiding. They quit coming to chapel. They quit coming to visit me. And the reason is that, that the shame and the guilt has driven them away and they're afraid somebody's going to drop the hammer on them. And so I, I have to remind them constantly, he's not going to withhold himself from you. There's not a hammer waiting for you. And what a great reminder you have in just a few minutes when we take Holy Communion together. No matter what you've done this week, if you've come forward, you will hear, this is the body of Christ given for you. Which means this, there's nothing you have done this week that will make God hold back from you. Nothing. And that's what keeps us on the highway, is the hope that God's at the end of it. That's one for those of you in Christ. Some of you are here visiting. I don't know why you're here. I know it's the holiday season, and I know that parents can do amazing guilt trips to bring you to church when you really didn't want to be here. <laughs> Maybe some of you heard there was free coffee, and you, but you didn't know you had to listen to a sermon first. I don't know. <laughs> but you're here. 
And I just want to leave you with this thought. C.S. Lewis, he said, if we find ourselves with a desire nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. I think he's kind of right and kind of wrong. Do you ache? Are you hungry? You were made for another world. But where I think he goes a little off is you're not going there. That other world came to you when the Son of God took on flesh. You see, it's not just that you desire something, it's that he desires something as well. For the joy set before him, Hebrews says, he endured the shame of the cross. You know what that joy was? Whether you know him or not, that joy was you. And, uh, and, and you can have that otherworldly satisfaction today simply by putting your, your trust in Jesus to satisfy.